everybody has friends, or most people have friends in their life. And when you have dinner with somebody, that's when you kind of start to get to know them, especially when they come to your house. So there's always that first time that your friends come to your house. And when they, when they come, they, they, you end up cleaning everything extra special and taking extra care and making sure that everything's folded. And you, you take the pillow and you put it on the, the, the couch. And I've actually seen my wife do this where she puts the pillow on the couch and then she does some kind of a judo chop on it that puts the perfect crease in the pillow, which I I don't understand what that's going on, but she's doing that. And then you, you got the music playing where it's the right song and everything. And the kids don't look like they just, you know, bounced out of a mud pit. They actually look clean and their hair is combed. And, and that's the first time when somebody comes over and then they sit down to dinner and it's a whole bunch of pleases and thank yous. And can I get you some more gravy? And would you like some more tea and all this other stuff? And you're eating on the best plate you've got. And that's the first time somebody has dinner at your house. The second time somebody comes to your house, uh, you start to shift a little bit. You, you maybe don't go for the fine china because you don't want to put the china in the dishwasher. So you get the other plates that you use that you know you'll just throw in the dishwasher. And then you take care of it and you don't chop the pillows anymore. And you, don't, uh, you make sure that everything's still nice, but everything's not just crazy nice. You know what I'm saying? And people, they still come through the front door and they have a good time and everything's wonderful. But things start to break down a little bit. You start to find out that, you know... They drank your iced tea, but they didn't like your iced tea. You find out that they they ate the biscuits that you made, but they don't like the jelly that you serve or whatever. But then the third time gets there. And here's the interesting thing about the third time somebody has dinner at your house. Number one, you obviously like that person. Because you would not have invited them back for the third dinner if you didn't like them. They don't come in through the front door. Matter of fact, you don't even answer the door. You're sitting there mixing up the food that you told them would be ready at 7. It's 7.15 when they got there and you haven't started it and you don't even feel bad. You scream at them and say, come in. They come in and the dog runs outside and you ask them to go chase your dog down the street and catch your dog and bring it back. This is the third time you've had dinner. Instead of pulling out the plates out of the cabinet, you go into the other cupboard where the paper plates are. You pull the paper plates off and then you sit there and you put it in. You say, hey, dinner will be ready here in just a little bit. But oh, by the way, would you mind peeling those potatoes? So you've got them now uh, completely involved in dinner because this is the third time you've been together. And you say, oh, by the way, I, I, I remember you don't like Diet Coke, so I got you some Diet Dr. Pepper. You start to find out a little bit more about them. And then all of a sudden you see Sports Center and Johnny Manziel has been caught on another picture doing something else crazy. And you start screaming at the TV at Johnny Football saying, I wish you'd get it right, Johnny. I like wearing your jersey, but I can't wear it if you keep acting like that. And your friend doesn't even look up. They just go, boy, that guy likes Johnny Football. It's the third time you have dinner. You start to get a, a sense of comfort around somebody. You start to get a sense of knowing. You start to understand somebody better. You don't just know their name. You begin to understand what they like. You find out the last time you served brownies, they didn't eat one because they don't like chocolate, which means they are crazy, number one. But number two, it means the next time they come, you make them a Rice Krispie treat or something. Are y'all getting hungry yet or is it just me? It's the third time you have dinner. The walls start to fall down. You start to get into a place where you feel like you're accessible and they're accessible. Well, interestingly enough, this is what Jesus wants with you and me. You see, he doesn't want to be just the first time dinner guest. 
He doesn't want to be just the folded cloth napkin guest at your home. He wants to be the friend that sticks closer than a brother. That when you can't think of anything else to do because somebody swerves in front of you, the first thing that comes out of your lips is Jesus. We wants to be so close to you that when you're, you, you feel something coming against you, you hear the buzz around the water cooler at work that they're going to start laying people off, that the first thing you do is you start remembering, yeah, but my God supplies my needs according to His riches and glory. Because you're close to Him. You know what He likes and you know what He, what, you know what he likes and He knows what you like. If you have your Bible open to Luke chapter number 22, it's one of my very favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Begin reading in verse number 7. This is whenever the disciples and Jesus are about to go and, and take the feast of Passover together. And then they're going to have what we call the Last Supper or the First Communion. Verse number 7 says this. Then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. The Passover was whenever the Jews remembered being set free of Egypt. We'll get to that again in a minute. But verse number 8 says, And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. Now, interestingly enough, uh, uh, if I was Jesus, I might not would have picked Peter and John because Peter and John, uh, they're mentioned in the Bible more than any of the other uh, 12 that followed him, except maybe Judas. And Judas isn't mentioned in the Bible for good things. He's mentioned in the Bible because he was a rat and he stole from the treasury and then he denied Jesus, which I don't want to crucify uh, Judas, but the bottom line is he's not known for good things. Peter and John, however, were known for good things. They both uh, had some writings in the, in, that we have recorded in the scripture and they're very uh, prominent in the ministry of Jesus. But what's interesting about that is I think Jesus might have been trying to tell us something. You see, he could have picked anybody, could have picked Andrew, could have picked Philip, could have picked Bartholomew. Any of the people that we don't hear very much about would have been perfectly capable to go and set a table. But instead, Jesus chooses the two most prominent people most prominent disciples that we will hear about and talk about for all eternity to be the ones to go do the medial or the minuscule or the seemingly insignificant task of going to another place and setting the table. You see, so many times in our lives, we look at the big thing and we say, God, if you would call me to go and climb the mountain, I would climb the mountain tomorrow. And God, if you would call me to walk on water, I'd be the first one out of the boat. But God's just saying, I just need somebody to set the table. I need somebody to do the thing that nobody else wants to do. I need somebody to be the one who will speak to that coworker and tell them about how Jesus really has changed your life. I need somebody to be the left foot and the right foot and the left foot and the right foot of Christianity that says this is where the rubber meets the road. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, the Bible says it like this. I must decrease so that he can increase. Peter and John, the most prominent disciples, at least from a standpoint of how often they're mentioned in our Bible, were the ones that Jesus called to go and simply set the table. Verse 9, and he said unto them, where will you... Uh, uh, where will thou that we prepare? Meaning, where do you want us to prepare? Where do you want us to eat? Did you know that it is very important where you spend your time? It's very important where you spend your time physically. Now, there is a, a lost world that we are here to, see, to, serve, to, to save, to do our best to give the, 
the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ that the word may manifest in their life that they would believe it and they would be changed. But at the exact same time in our lives, it is very important not just geographically where we spend our time, but it's important mentally and emotionally where we spend our time. It's important that the thoughts that come in your mind, those that do not line up with the Word of God, you do not sit and meditate on those thoughts, but you cast down vain imaginations and you put your focus right back on the mark for the prize of the high calling in Christ. You see, you only have 24 hours in a day. That's all there's ever been. It seems to me that time keeps getting faster and faster and faster. Yet 24 hours a day is really all that we have. So the more time that you spend thinking and meditating on things that do not line up with God's Word, the more time that you are not spending in communion with God in that third dinner type scenario. You see, so many times we waste time. And I don't mean, you know, took a wrong turn. And I don't mean, uh, you know, did a crossword puzzle instead of doing the, the work that we brought home or whatever it is. I'm talking about the time between your ears that you don't spend trying to get your mind renewed and focused on the things of God. Peter and John asked Jesus, where would you like us to go? Because it's important where we spend our time. Verse 10 says, And he said unto him, Behold, when you enter into the city, there shall a man meet you, meaning God's always going to prepare a way for you, bearing a pitcher of water, follow him in the house uh, where he enters. Go in the house where he goes. And you shall say unto the good man of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber I will eat the pa- where I will eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room, furnished there, furnished there, make ready. Now, I said this in the first service. I'm going to say it again. I'm proclaiming and declaring that scripture for New Heights Church that he is going to prepare a place for us. He's going to prepare a building for us, a property for us, a large property, a large building, a furnished. Now, I don't care if we got to go buy the furniture or if it comes with furniture, but I'm just declaring in Jesus' name that God's got a place for us and he's got somebody making it ready. Amen? Verse 13, And they went and found as he had said, and they set the table. They made ready the Passover. Now, interestingly enough about Jesus and his disciples, Jesus' ministry started, most people believe it started whenever he was baptized by John the Baptist, his cousin. So Jesus' earthly ministry was between three and three and a half years before he was crucified and before he rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven. So the interesting thing that I see there is this is not the first Passover that he had with the disciples. Arguably, it's three. It's the third one, possibly the fourth one. But either way, let's just say it's the third one. So from this standpoint, you've got Peter and John, who Jesus says to him, you guys go and set the table. Now, you also have to remember that none of the disciples had the benefit of the full understanding of who Jesus is like we do. Meaning they can't look and see Jesus, the risen Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. They can't look at Jesus and see the empty tomb yet. They're on the other side of Calvary. Their eyes and their understanding have not been enlightened. Their ears have not been opened. So everything that Jesus is saying and everything in the Old Testament is knowledge to them, but they really don't have any understanding of what they're currently experiencing. So I could see uh, Pete and Johnny walking down the street, going to set the table and thinking, well, this is going to take a while and as much as I like like Passover, as much as I like remembering Moses, I sure, I sure will be glad uh, whenever we can get done with this unleavened bread and I can go down to Krispy Kreme and get me a donut because a Krispy Kreme donut is better than unleavened bread. If you've never had a Krispy Kreme donut, take a road trip with your family and if your family can't go, go by yourself 
and find Krispy Kreme. Does anybody know about Krispy Kreme? Wave at me. Krispy Kreme has a light, y'all. And it is attached to the blinker on whatever car I'm driving. And the light says hot donuts or something like that. I mean, they just came out of the grease. And anytime, no matter where I am, what I'm doing, if I see that light come on, the blinker in my car automatically just pop, just booms, and I turn in there and get a donut. Unleavened bread is terrible compared to a Krispy Kreme donut. So I could see Peter and John walking, going to do just the normal task of setting the table for this religious occurrence that takes place every year. And they're probably sitting there going, I wonder if he's going to ask me about a scripture. I wonder if he's going to quiz me like he did last year. And they're sitting there trying to figure it out. And they had no idea that this occurrence was going to be one of the most powerful occurrences in all the history of mankind where Jesus is going to lay out not just, not they're not just going to talk about the Passover of old, but they're going to talk about the new Passover that took place at Calvary when death passed over you and me and Phil, and, and, and he took on his back. See, everything about life was about to change. So Jesus is sitting there and uh, the disciples, they've got a lot on their plate like you and me do because uh, they were considered holy rollers. They were considered uh, the people that were kind of on the outcast. They were talking about how good Jesus is all the time. And they're saying, does he really cast out devils? Does he really heal the sick? Does he really walk on water? What all does he do? And then Jesus sits down with them and they have the, the, the Passover meal and everything's great. And Jesus is sitting there going. And then he looks at him and says, hey, guys, guess what? This is my flesh and you guys are going to eat my flesh. Now, I don't know about you. We're on this side of Calvary, so we have an understanding what he's talking about. But I could just see Peter and John going, Jesus, you are making this so difficult. Everybody's already talking bad about you. And now you're talking about us eating your flesh? That just sounds really weird. What are we doing talking about eating flesh? And then Jesus goes, yeah, 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 not just the flesh, but this cup. Yeah, this is my blood, and y'all are going to drink my blood. I can see him look over at John and say, John, did Jesus just say we're going to drink his blood? Because if you're not a Christian... And you don't understand what he's saying there. And they did not. Then that is kind of a weird statement. Amen. So he sits there. He says, this is my body. This is my flesh, which you're going to eat. And this is my blood, which you're going to drink. Now, the interesting thing is at the Passover, they would always talk about Moses and how the angel, the death angel came and, and that's how uh, the people were delivered was with the blood of the lamb and it, it, the whole thing is just to remember the Passover, but the disciples had no idea. They had the knowledge of that, but they had no understanding. So Jesus talks about his body and his blood and now they have the knowledge of what he's talking about, but they have no understanding of what he's really saying. Let me give you an example of knowledge and understanding. Uh, if you know how to start your car with a set of keys, that means you have the knowledge of where to put it and how to turn it. If you have an understanding of automobiles, you know that you take the key in there, turn it, there's a switch in there that releases some electrons which then go to, a, uh, to, to tell your battery to send power to your starter which then turns the flywheel which consequently sends more power that goes to your spark plugs which, uh, by the way, there's some injectors that are shooting gas into a chamber and inside that chamber you've got a cylinder, you're, 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 there's a piston that whenever that thing's going to fire off it's going to light that gas, it's going to send the piston down and all those pistons are going to start turning, there's going to be a whole bunch of explosions there 
and there's going to be some fumes come out the back and then you're going to be able to pull it down and drive. When you pull it down and drive, your transmission is going to move from the park position which has no gear engaged to a position where it's engaged and then you're going to hit gas and then you're going to put, send more gas in there so the injectors put more gas, the spark plugs bring more fire, the thing starts moving like this and you're able to go. That's an understanding of what takes place with an automobile. There is a difference between knowledge. Listen, if I asked my wife to come up here and explain to me how a car drives, she would go, put the key in, turn it. She has the knowledge of how to do it, but she might not have an overwhelming understanding of how an internal combustion motor works. Amen? Another example would be my wife. I love her completely. In every way, I love my wife. When we got married 10 years ago, I could not have loved her more on that day than I did. And I had a lot of knowledge about her. But I, don't, I didn't have as much understanding of her as I do now. Meaning, I knew that uh, she lived on Tarpey Road. I knew that she lived in Texas City. I, I knew that uh, uh, she, she drove a, a Mercury Cougar car. I knew that she went to, to college and, and worked at Dillard's. These are all the things that I knew about her. But I didn't necessarily have the fullness and understand. I also knew that she was blonde. I remember whenever I met her, she was this blonde, beautiful bombshell. And I was like, "Woo! I'm going to marry a blonde just like God intended. Sorry, brunettes. That's for me. As a man thinks in his heart, so it is with that man. Come on, somebody. So I remember I asked her to marry me. And I, I put the ring on her finger and I got down on a knee. We were in Durango, Colorado, and it was snowing. And we stopped under a street light. And, and, and she just begged me to marry her. No, that's not true. I begged her. She said yes. And... You know, it's been good ever since. But anyway, I put the ring on her finger and, you know, we were engaged for a, a pretty good while. Never lived more than about 100 miles from one another. And uh, uh, we, I remember about a month before we got married, I went down to see her, knocked on the door. She still lived at her, at her parents' house. And I knocked on the door and uh, she, she opens the door and, and my beautiful blonde-headed wife was brunette. <laughs> and, and, and I just shut the door. No, I didn't. <laughs> I, did. I, said, I said, baby, I said, uh, when I gave you that ring, you were blonde-headed. And I'm really hoping when I say I do, you'll be blonde-headed again. And, and really, I would have married her. I didn't care if she had any hair. But, but she, uh, she said, you, y'all, y'all don't understand it. She goes, no, I dyed it all one color because I'm fixing to dye it another color. Which doesn't make any, all the ladies were like, uh-huh. All the guys were like, let's go fishing. <laughs> so anyway, she dyed it back blonde the way God intended and everything was fine. But, but we end up, see, I, I had a lot of knowledge about her. But see, now I know what time she starts getting tired at night. I know how she likes her coffee in the morning. I know her favorite brands of, uh, of different knick-knack paddywhack stuff like, like purses and junk, you know. It's really not junk, I guess, but that stuff. I know what kind of clothes she likes. I can go into a store and I can tell you she's going to like that shirt, that shirt, and that shirt. I remember not long ago, we just bought a new couch. And, and, and uh, the way we shop a lot of times is one of us goes and does like a reconnaissance mission uh, without the kids. And then we bring everybody in there so that we can both look at it. So I go to this furniture store and I make that five-minute lap through the furniture store like a man would do. And I remember telling the salesman, I said, my wife is going to like that couch right there. And sure enough, the next day, we get all the kids in there and, and pull them in there. And, you know, she's holding two of their hands. And I've got the other one we're walking through. And she walks all through the store. And she's starting to get close to that couch. And I just stopped. And she goes, oh, Brian, have you seen this one? I'm like, which one? Because I knew 
which one she was going to like because now I have an understanding of who she is. You see, Jesus found it very important to expose not just the knowledge of who he is, but when he defeated death, hell, and the grave on Resurrection Sunday, he enabled you and me to have an understanding of who he is. The Passover was the perfect time for God to bring His great escape plan to fruition. You see, every year at Passover, Jews sit and they get together and they they reminisce and they remember about how there was a hard man named Pharaoh and he he was sitting there and he didn't know a guy named Joseph who had a lot of favor uh, in, in, in Egypt, but he was a different Pharaoh and he would just despise the Israelites and he would make them, one of their primary tasks was to make bricks while he was building this big empire and he was rude and, and hurtful and ugly and then the Bible says that there came a deliverer out of the wilderness named Moses who was raised in Pharaoh's house, got sent out and came back, which is a whole nother long story. And he comes back and he begins to tell uh, Pharaoh, listen now, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of these people who you're trying to hold down and you need to let them go. And the Pharaoh's whose heart was hardened says, I'm not letting anybody go. And the Bible says that God would send plague after plague after plague on the people uh, of Egypt to try to get Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. The Bible said he sent 10 plagues, nine of which did not work. And what I mean by did not work is he did not release the Israelites because of nine plagues. Only one-tenth a tithe or ten percent of the plagues are what caused him to release the Israelites. The Bible says that it wasn't uh, the lice and it wasn't fear of locusts and it wasn't water turning to blood, but it was the death of the firstborn that caused the Pharaoh to go, I've got to let these people go. And conversely, and at the exact same time, it was the blood of a spotless lamb that caused the Israelites to be saved. If I was God, I would have done it a lot different. I saw the movie Godzilla uh, recently. And if y'all don't like Godzilla, y'all just pray for me because I thought it was great. But here's the scenario. I would have chosen something like Godzilla. I would have made something incredible. And I would have gotten to go get Pharaoh. And I would have made that thing, made a big old train or something. And all the Israelites would have jumped on the big Godzilla train and just rode out of Egypt just like that. Saying, see, I told you we got Godzilla too. That's what I would have done. But the Bible says that God, the creator of heaven and earth, who can do, will do, and has done anything and everything that benefits you and me, chose the blood of a spotless lamb to be the delivering agent for his people who've been in captivity. He said, I want you to do this. He said, everybody that, that loves me, everybody who's called by my name, you take a spotless lamb and you kill it and you take the blood of that lamb and you put it on one side of the doorpost. Then you put it on this side of the doorpost and you put it on the top of the doorpost and you put it there. And when the angel of death comes over on that dreadful night when I'm going to come and take what is lawfully mine, when that takes place, when that last plague of total, uh, uh, of total restoration for the Israelites and total turmoil, for those who are against God when that final plague the death angel comes over he's not going to look down at the Israelites house and say I'm not going to kill him because I love him he's going to look at it and say I can't kill him because death has already been there it's the same with you and me you don't get to escape death because you love God you get to escape death because God loved you Jesus died on your behalf you still owe the debt he just paid it It's not a situation where God goes, well, I love these people more than this people. It's simply that death has already been paid 
on your behalf. So the Israelites then, not only uh, uh, do they get delivered by the blood of the Lamb, the Bible says that they walk out of there with all the spoils of Egypt. The Egyptians are so uh, happy for them to leave, to get away from them so that God doesn't tear them up anymore, that He sits there and give, they give them all the gold and silver, so much that they're dropping some of it. And then as they're walking out, the Bible says that they come up on a Red Sea. And the Bible says that God parts the Red Sea, which is symbolic of a baptism by water. As the new creation walks out of Egypt, walks out of sin and into a new life, they get into a place called the wilderness there and only there that they understand they begin to experience the fact that he supplies our needs according to his riches and glory then they get thirsty and the Bible says that Moses takes a stick the same stick that he's been carrying around ever since he was on top of the mountain and saw the burning bush and the Bible says that he hits a rock and when he hits the rock out of that rock flows water because there was a day coming when Jesus was going to walk up to a lady and not only is Jesus uh, the king of kings and lord of lords he's also the building block that was rejected that became the cornerstone of the whole new world he comes to a lady and he says to her he says get me something to drink she says oh you can't drink from me because I'm you can't drink my water because I'm a Gentile you this and he says to him if you ask me for a drink you would drink water from me and you would never thirst again You see, the Israelites come out and the whole gospel of Jesus Christ is being laid out before their very eyes and they have the fullness and the knowledge of who God is and how He's doing it, but they don't have any understanding of why it's lawful. You and me are living a life and so many times we have so much knowledge of God, but we don't understand God. You and me are living a life and we have so much uh, 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 knowledge and book smarts on God, but we don't understand what He really did. Because if we understood what He really did, every every situation that we come into, every problem that we come across, we would remember that the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit of God that now dwells in us makes us an overwhelming, undefeatable majority in any situation. Your life is not your own. The same way that God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, the blood of a spotless lamb, He still does today. The same way that God delivered, the same way that God set free, He does today. The difference is, do we have the knowledge or do we have the understanding? The Israelites, when they were in Egypt, they were tasked with building these bricks like I mentioned. And I could imagine them thinking, man, it can't get any worse than this. All we do is take bricks and build them for somebody else's kingdom. Brick after brick after brick. And then the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob comes and just starts tearing the the, the Egyptians up. And they're sitting there and the Egyptians are getting madder and madder and madder. Finally, they say, listen, you think it's bad now, Israelites? Now you got to make bricks without straw. That'd be like making cake without flour or concrete without rocks. Or concrete without sand. It'd be like doing something without the right ingredients. It's the same thing in your life and my life. Whenever we're going through something, we think it can't get any worse than this. And guess what? It does. It's like when you think, man, this relationship is as bad as it's ever been. And I'm doing everything I know to do. And then it takes two more steps backwards instead of two steps forward. It's in that moment and that time you have to remember... That it's the blood of Jesus that sets us free and not our capacity, not our ability to be upright. That's the last point I want to make. The Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead, of course, 
three days after he was crucified. The Bible says that in uh, Luke 22, whenever he was having uh, uh, the communion or he was receiving the Last Supper uh, with his disciples, he said, listen guys, I'm not going to eat any more bread until what I have been sent here to accomplish, what I've been sent here to fulfill is done. I'm not going to, I'm not going to eat again until it's over. And then the Bible says the day that he rose from the dead, which was uh, on a Sunday, the Bible says there was two disciples, not necessarily uh, two of the twelve. Matter of fact, it wasn't. They're walking on a road to a place called Emmaus. And the Bible says that Jesus appears to them and they begin walking together. But he concealed himself. So that they didn't understand that this is Jesus. But the Bible says that their countenance, that they were sad. Said that they were uh, just, just their, their, their countenance was down. They weren't pleased. They were, it was obvious that something was wrong. So Jesus said to them, he says, guys, what's the matter? And they answered, this is in Luke 24. They answered and said, uh, uh, well, have you not heard? We were so convinced that this guy named Jesus was the Messiah. He had done all these miracles. He had ran people out of the temple. People followed him. He would raise people from the dead. He walked on water. Uh, Storms would listen to him. Demons would flee at the sound of his name. We just knew this guy was it. And we thought, man, Israel's about to take over. We're about to run the Romans out of here. We're about to just, everything's about to get better. And guess what? They killed him for nothing. They put stripes on his back. They beat him, they spit on him, they mocked him. They put this crazy crown of thorns on his head. Then they, married, then they made him carry a cross up a rock hill until, until they finally got it up there. And then they laid it down, they put him on it, they stretched him out, and they, they nailed him to that cross. And we sat thinking, maybe now he's going to pull himself off of there. Maybe now is when he's going to do his great escape and he's going to show all these heathens who God really is and how he truly is the Messiah. Maybe that's how he's going to do it. And Jesus is just sitting there listening. And they said, but he didn't. He died. I watched him take his lifeless body off the cross. Some friends of mine took him and they wrapped him in some nice clothes and, and every, wrapped him in some nice cloth and then they put him in a guy's tomb. It's not even, it's not even his grave. He's just borrowing it. I don't know what they're going to do with him. And there's rumor that, you know, he's alive, but I don't know. We haven't seen him. Then they get to the place where they're about to stop because they've reached their destination and Jesus acts like he's going to keep going. And they said, no, 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 it's almost dark. Come in here, come in here, come in and eat with us. The Bible says Jesus sits down and eats. Now remember, he said, I won't eat anything else until I've accomplished it. He put an exclamation point on it and says, this is done, guys. And instead of doing what I would do, which is pull my hands out and show him the scars and say, man, I'm alive, get with it. Don't worry about it. I, I might would have done like this and poof, made a bird show up or something. I would have done a miracle. I'm Jesus. That's what I would have done. But instead, Jesus does this. The Bible says in Luke 24, He started with Moses and He began to expose who Jesus is all through the Scripture. 
Because you see, Jesus knew that in 2014, you could go to any low-rent show in Vegas and see somebody pull a dove out of their sleeve. You can go to any low-rent show in Vegas and show somebody escape from certain death out of, a, out of a straight jacket in a box held over a fire or whatever. So the fact of him coming off a cross, yeah, it would have been a miracle. Yeah, it would have been powerful. But the problem is somebody, some way would have been able to say, you know what, but I saw Chris Angel, Mind Freak, do that on TV. So what he said was this. It's more important... For you to find me here than it is for you to see me here. Because whatever you're going through in your life, again, I would have chosen some awesome Tyrannosaurus Rex or something. But the blood of a spotless lamb is the chosen way for God to not only bless you, but to deliver you from all captivity. The Bible said as soon as that he said that, as soon as he, he opened their eyes so they could see that it was him and he disappeared. They jumped up. They went back to Jerusalem fast as they could. And they went into the room where the disciples were. And the disciples were probably going, well, I mean, the girl said he rose from the dead. And Peter's kind of saying, I don't know. You know, he, he did a lot of stuff. I guess he would. And then these two guys come and they beat on the door. and they, Let me in, let me in. And they don't want to let anybody in because they're scared. They're about to get beat and nailed to a cross too. So they look through the crack in the board. And they see that it's some disciple friends of theirs, some guys who follow Jesus around with him. And they let him in real quick. And they go, you're not going to believe this. We saw him. But, 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 but it's not just that we saw him. He's everything the Bible said was coming. He's everything the Bible said was ever going to be that we would ever need. He's everything that we can't be. And then Jesus shows up. Here's the deal. In your life and in my life, you've been asked to make bricks. I get it. And when you thought it was difficult, they took away some ingredients. I get it. But the blood of the Lamb has not lost any power in your life. On the contrary, the blood of the Lamb And not just the knowledge of God, but the understanding of who He's made you to be has changed everything. Stand to your feet if you would, please. I'll ask our praise team. Thank you for listening. For more information on Pastor Brian and New Heights Church, please visit www.newheightschurch.info.